0: Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America.
1: Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm your host, Keith Breckus. It's uh, December 4th. Normally I'd be broadcasting from Montana, but uh, tonight I'm broadcasting from the Kingdom of Nye, which is actually Nye County, Nevada, because I'm on the ground um working as a field organizer for the Bernie Sanders campaign. So this may be our last live show in a while, or Naomi might take the ball and run with it, but it may be possible that as we get closer to the February caucuses that I might not be available on Friday evenings because I might be working. But in any case, um, I'm here tonight, and I'm excited. Our guest tonight uh, is Deepa Iyer, who is a leading racial justice activist who served for a decade as the executive director of South Asian Americans Leading Together, or the acronym SALT with two A's in it, um, where she focused on community building in post-9-11 America. Uh, She teaches in the Asian American Studies Program at the University of Maryland, and she is also the author of a a recent or newly released book called We Too Sing America, uh, and the subtitle is South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants. Shape our multiracial future. So we're really excited to have her on. How are you doing tonight, Deepa?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, and we really appreciate it. And uh, I guess maybe to start with, maybe you could just outline maybe a little bit about your background and, and what the book is about, and then we can jump into some other maybe more specific questions.
0: Sure. Well, I think you gave the book a pretty good introduction. The book really. Is about the landscape in America in the 14 years after the 9 11 attacks. And it focuses, as you mentioned, on particular communities which have really been othered and marginalized in those 14 years South Asian, Muslim, Arab, and Sikh immigrant communities. And I wrote the book because I have felt through my own work at uh, SALT, a nonprofit organization, uh, and, and other places that there is a knowledge gap when it comes to Americans fully understanding what the landscape is in post-9-11 America, how these issues and how the ways in which we have responded as a country uh, to what happened on that terrible day have affected people here in America as well. And so the book seeks to close some information gaps about the landscape but also provide some policy solutions and ideas as well.
1: Very good. And and uh, I guess going back to your own history, um when you were uh 12 years old your family moved from India to Louisville, Kentucky. Um and what was it like for you to grow up in the South and when did you become aware of your place outside sort of the black white black and white racial system or that sort of dichotomy?
0: Right. Well, as you can imagine, it was a rather confusing period to be moving from India to Kentucky when you were 12 years old. And certainly because at that time in the late 80s, in Kentucky anyway, race was really seen through a black or white racial binary. And so people like myself who are Indian American or Asian American really didn't have a place to fit into a category that we could claim, for example. And so I did go through some periods of racial confusion, trying to figure out what my identity was as an Indian American, hyphenated American, so to speak. And for me, I think some of those experiences growing up as an immigrant, especially in the South, um, watching sort of my parents navigate uh, the, the ways in which they were treated themselves as immigrants, did open up for me this clear understanding that I was different in some way. And that sense of feeling different um, stayed with me through college, law school, and the like. And I think I began to really understand that in our country, you know, there are sets of communities who are marginalized and treated differently and that systems like the justice system, the immigration system, don't really work in favor of those communities. They often actually are set up to marginalize them further. And so part of my work has been to see how we can actually make those systems work for us. What do we need to do to change laws, change institutions? And I have primarily worked through the lens of structural racism. And so how do we actually um, change and alter systems, institutions, laws, and policies so that we can actually live in a more inclusive democracy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know in this country, race is, is often a, a sort of a fluid category for certain racial groups. I, I mean, I think, mm. um, for Arab people, it you know, it's changed from what it was in the early 20th century to in the 21st where they were, you know, Syrian people might've been viewed as, as sort of close to being white in the early 1900s. And now they're more right. often seen as sort of people of color. And, um, based sort of on politics or events happening in parts of the world. And so how is the decade and a half since um, the September 11th terrorist attacks of 2001, how has that uh, time period fundamentally altered South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrant communities in the United States?
0: Well, the period after 9-11, the 14 years after 9-11, have really been a chunk of time in which these particular communities have been seen as potential suspects or potential terrorists in this country. And what that means is that they are often scapegoated for what happened on 9-11 or for other terrorist incidents that happen around the country or around the world. And the way in which this othering has manifested itself is in three particular forms. So first, we have seen levels of backlash against these communities perpetrated by individuals um, in one-on-one interactions. So hate violence, uh, employment discrimination, bullying at schools. These are the types of individual discrimination and violence we've seen. A second way in which this backlash is manifested is through government policies, so the ways in which our government uses national security as sort of a blanket reason or a blanket justification to profile people from these communities or to surveil them or to detain or interrogate them um, without actually having oftentimes just cause. That is another way in which we've seen it manifested. And the third is through misleading media narratives. So we've all kind of become accustomed to seeing pictures of brown men, turbaned men, for example. And those images have firmly become entrenched in America's imagination as being those related to a potential terrorist. And so when, when people see someone like that on a plane, for example, they get scared. So these three ways in which the post-9-11 environment and backlash manifest itself really reinforce each other. It's sort of a loop. And so in the book, I talk about how each of them affects our community members, what the impact is, and why we have to do better.
1: Yeah, and and I know, for example, with individual acts of violence uh, targeting people, I know one of the more um, egregious instances over the last, several years with the 2012 massacre at the Sikh temple in Wisconsin um, is one example of of many acts of violence that have targeted either South Asian Arab Muslim or Sikh communities in the U.S. in the uh, post-September 11th world, if you will. And uh, yet uh, you know, too, that hate violence targeting these communities has a much longer history. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. So while definitely after 9-11 we saw unprecedented hate violence targeting our communities, it's not a new phenomenon either. Uh, We have seen, for example, hate violence targeting South Asian communities in particular since the turn of the 20th century. So in the book I talk about examples such as the anti-Asian exclusion laws that were in place that targeted migrant laborers from parts of Asia, in the early 20th century. And those laws actually also were oftentimes reinforced again by media narratives that targeted these communities as well as one-on-one violence. So in the book, I talk about um, a riot that happened in Bellingham, Washington in 1907, where a group of people in Bellingham um, decided that they did not want these migrant laborers in their town unless it was when they were working in the lumber mills, and they um, assaulted them, accosted them, and locked them into the basement of City Hall. That's just one example of these anti-Asian riots that happened pretty much down the West Coast in the early 20th century. And then we saw in the late 80s when you had a new wave of South Asian immigrants coming into the country, uh, settling into neighborhoods, revitalizing them, putting up small businesses, for example. In New Jersey, there was a group of uh, individuals called the Dot Busters who were intent on driving Indians out of Jersey City, New Jersey. And they, again, engaged in hate violence in order to do that and intimidation. Uh, and then there are other examples of hate violence targeting our communities on the basis of faith on the basis of uh color race national origin and the like and so by the time we got to 911 you know it was clearly recorded and documented that south Asians like other communities of color experienced hate violence but certainly we were i think quite unprepared for what we were going to witness and experience in the years after 911
1: sure And I I know, too, on the government end, the federal government took on many new functions post-9-11, many of which, uh, you point out, operate in direct contradiction with one another. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that schism?
0: Yes, of course. So in, in terms of these national security policies and immigration policies, the government did indeed put into place initiatives, and they're called, you know, these really... Um, names that I think escaped the public attention, NSEERS or special registration or the alien absconder initiative. You know, these are two, two of many policies that were implemented. But these policies really were intended to, as I mentioned earlier, really single out particular communities who came from South Asia or the Middle East, and it was intended to question them, profile them, detain them, and often deport them. But at the same time, other arms of our government were engaged in protecting these same communities in terms of the backlash that they were facing. So, for example, the enforcement of civil rights laws in the classroom or the workplace or even if you experienced hate violence. But the contradiction of the government playing these two roles, one as a champion and enforcer of rights, but then secondly as the the one that also engaged in profiling and surveillance of these two of these communities just really can't be explained or justified, and so as a result, many community members are distrustful of government. Don't know if they can even reach out to government if they are victims of violence because they're worried that they might get caught in this net of suspicion and surveillance as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's kind of an inherent contradiction there where you right. might have one government agency to sort of. Uh, fighting to protect um um people of South Asian or, or Arab uh lineage from from being uh discriminated against or, you know, at least hate crime statutes. And on the other hand, you like you mentioned in your book, uh, one of the really harmful state policies implemented post nine eleven was the NSEERS program, which um said certain things about, you know, certain government assumptions about international visitors, temporary workers, and students, and, and how did that program sort of hurt those communities and sort of undermine uh, the other functions of government, maybe, in protecting them?
0: Yeah, so NCIRS, or special registration, was a policy that was implemented by the Department of Justice in 2003, and the focus there was that it required men who were aged 16 years and older from 28 countries mainly muslim majority countries in south asia and the middle east it required men from those countries who were not nat- who were foreign nationals to register or report to their local immigration offices and When these men did that, and many, many, many people did, um, they were actually asked some questions that did not seem relevant to their immigration status, such as where they prayed, what mosque they attended, and the like. And at the end of the day, this particular policy, many advocates decried it as being a policy that was blatantly profiling people on the basis of national origin. So even though the government said, this is for our national security, we need to know this information, they only focus this particular policy on those nationals from those 28 countries. And as a result of NCRS or special registration, we have seen thousands of men be deported, family members separated, small businesses shut down, and neighborhoods in different parts of the country fully changed um, because of this exodus, this forced exodus um, of people in our communities.
1: Yeah, certainly. And and um one of the I guess one of the themes that you bring up in your book that I think is important, um sort of a uh maybe a sociological term or theme that's important, but uh um you talk about the racial bribe, um and what what is the racial bribe and how does it tempt some people of of South Asian descent?
0: Right. So I also, you know, in addition to talking about the post nine eleven climate in America talk about and write about the importance of South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrants in really understanding what their roles are in terms of the racial ladder or the racial hierarchy in the United States. And so this ladder is one in which whites have privileges, they're at the top of the ladder, and blacks are at the bottom. And other communities of color are sort of in the middle somewhere, in between. And The racial bribe is this concept that comes from sociologists and scholars that basically says that some communities of color will be given an invitation to rise up the racial ladder, to aspire to, quote, honorary whiteness. And South Asians are particularly vulnerable to receiving this bribe um, because there is a perception that South Asians are all highly educated, highly professionalized people in this country and that they don't have many challenges. And South Asians ourselves sometimes buy into this model minority status. We talk about our cultural exceptionalism in America. And so my call to action for South Asian immigrant communities is really to decline and refuse the racial bribe, to be aware when you're being asked to take it and to decline it and really work towards dismantling the racial ladder altogether. And one way in doing of doing that is to actually be in solidarity with other South Asians and other communities of color, in particular black communities.
1: Sure. And it- well, I, I mean, when I think of that term, particularly in reference to South Asians, I can't help but think of um, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, to the point even mm-hmm. where where his own self-portrait depicted him as
0: right. <laughs> right.
1: much lighter That's skin right. than it was which I thought was sort of ironic, but, but somehow in a way appropriate because it was almost like the way he views himself as sort of, a, I don't know, an honorary white or whatever, if you want to put mm-hmm. that in quotes, and... And um, yeah. I, I guess that was an example of somebody who talks That's actually the bride, really maybe. good.
0: E- <laughs> That's a really good example. I wish I had thought of that. Um, you're right. I mean, I and I think that you know beyond sort of those visual representations, Bobby Jindal has also talked a lot about how he believes that uh, immigrants in this country need to quote assimilate and give up sort of their hyphenated identities and the like. And, you know, the this that rhetoric is also very dangerous and divisive because it kind of um really whitewashes, for lack of a better word, you know, eliminates the idea that immigrant communities of South Asian background, for example, are racialized. It it assumes that they're not and that they can aspire to this honorary whiteness. But clearly, and that's what the book tries to show in the post nine eleven world, in post-911 America, South Asians have become racialized. We are seen as the other, and we are seen as these sort sort of potential terrorist suspects that um, don't deserve rights and entitlements and benefits like other Americans do.
1: Yeah, and and sort of related to that, how does um, resisting and challenging sort of the myth of cultural exceptionalism or or, uh, the model minority myth, maybe if you want to call it that, transform movements for racial justice and inequality?
0: Right. So I think that, you know, one of the ways in which we can be um, what I call disruptors and uh, and and that means that we disrupt these sort of um, used exploitative uh, racial narratives that we hear all the time Um, because part of what you get with the model minority myth is this, it's a racial wedge. It creates these barriers and differences that are very artificial between communities of color. And it's set up to do that. Um, So in order to actually transform our nation, in order to dismantle that racial hierarchy and to reach for equity, we need to find a way for all of us, whites, blacks, Asians, Native Americans, to be able to work together to dismantle these um, racial wedges, to refuse the racial bribe, and to really look for ways in which we can build commonality around shared values of what an inclusive democracy looks like in America, and also um, really find ways to address both uh, the, the racism that we see, both culturally, but also from a structural and institutional standpoint.
1: Sure. And right now, of course, the country is having renewed conversations about race and about immigration in light of the movement for Black Lives Matter and 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 in anticipation of the 2016 presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And you also have Donald Trump sort of um, using the immigration issue as a big wedge issue. Where do um, South Asian, Arab, and Muslim communities fit into those conversations?
0: Well, you know, when we're talked about at all in presidential debates, which is very, very rare, or around policy issues, we are often talked about as um, people that don't actually deserve a lot of rights. And so we have seen that again and again um, in this particular presidential cycle. Some of the rhetoric, especially from the GOP has been very divisive and harmful when it comes to Muslims or when it comes to immigrant communities, um, Latinos in particular, but I think all immigrant communities, including Asians, mm-hmm. have been targeted. Sure. And so this sort of rhetoric is very harmful to our communities because it basically doesn't allow us to have a stake in these national conversations. It portrays us as subjects that, you know, um, don't have any agency, that, um Policymakers are trying to figure out what to quote do with us, right? And so um, it is a very harmful trend. Um, I think that the Democrat, uh, the Democratic presidential candidates, have been doing a much better job when it comes to immigration issues or immigrant rights issues. But again, when it comes to issues of racial justice, criminal justice, um, when it comes to issues of say the detention and deportation system, or um, the movement for Black Lives. Um, or even issues around national security and civil rights and balancing the two, they also fall short. And so I think that, you know, we are looking, our communities are looking for actual policy proposals that are um, focused on dismantling the injustices that we see structurally in our country through laws and policies and are looking for some real rhetoric that shows that our communities are welcomed and that we are also seen as part of the American democracy. Because we certainly feel that we are, um and, and we are also flexing our muscle in terms of being um participating in the political process and the civic process. There are, you know, I think that these communities that I've written about are part of the new American electorate in this country. So certainly, Uh you know, we're going to continue to shape what that electorate looks like, but we're not seeing um, the real interest, I think, from political parties or candidates that we should be getting.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. I think there's sort of, um, at the very least, you know, the the (laughs) Republicans on one hand are dismissive of almost any people of right. color at this point, like they've sort of thrown, I mean, some of the candidates are better than others, but the ones who are getting traction are essentially the ones who are running almost as a white nationalist party. <laughs> you know, people like right. Donald Trump, mm-hmm. but even people like Ted Cruz and, and Ben Carson are, are giving a lot of voice to white supremacy, even if they themselves are my, member, you know, minority people that mm-hmm. their, their policies are very um, dismissive of, I think a lot of, what minority people are interested in, and then I think I think you're correct too, in that the Democrats um, also fall very short on many of these issues related to immigration and other things. Some of their rhetoric is a little less um, maybe extreme, or, or, or but but in terms of policy, there's still a lot to be desired uh, from all of the candidates, really. And um, with the uh, November 2016 elections uh, less than a year away now. Uh, Give us your perspective on maybe the role and the impact of Asian American communities and Arab Americans and others in terms of of the election next year.
0: Well, certainly I think Asian Americans as a whole, um, as well as South Asians, Muslims, Arabs, are gearing up for the elections in terms of voter registration campaigns, presenting policy platforms, and the like. And this is something that we have done for several cycles now in terms of the presidentials and even some local and state elections. So certainly there is, I think a real interest in, um, the issues that define our communities and the country as a whole. Um, But as I said, I think that we are looking for a lot more from the candidates on both sides. And what we're looking for is really substantive policy proposals and an engagement with the issues that matter in the daily lives of our communities, which are around the economy and access to health care and education, uh, issues around immigration and balancing national security and civil rights issues. So we're really looking for some some substantive engagement, and I think we'll continue to do that over the over the year ahead um you know generally speaking, there are reports that studies that have come out that asian Americans tend to vote more uh in line with the democratic party, but I also think that um it's important that we're not taken for granted by the Democratic party that we're just going to go ahead and, and vote that way. And so I think that we're looking for some real engagement, not just on our issues, but I think, and you alluded to this earlier, we didn't get to talk about it yet, but I think that many people in our communities are connected to the Movement for Black Lives, and we're looking to see how um, political candidates are going to engage substantially, substantively with the issues that affect black communities in this country as well.
1: Yeah, and your book does a good job of highlighting the need for solidarity across progressive movements for social change. And, and one of the questions that it raises, I think, is how, for example, can South Asian and Arab and Muslim communities support the Black Lives Matter movement um, mm-hmm. without it, without either co-opting it or at the same time without losing focus on issues of importance to their own communities, too? I mean, there's a balancing there. How 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 is that achieved?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that is something that I think we're still trying to figure out. Um, And what we have been seeing around the country is this real solidarity among South Asian Arab Muslim communities with the Movement for Black Lives, this understanding that uh, when black people are liberated, when they're truly free, that all people will be free and also understanding that many of the issues specifically as they relate to criminalization run across the board and across the gamut in several different communities. So, for example, uh, the criminal justice system and the incarceration of black people disproportionately in this country is similar to the deportation machine that detains and deports Latino communities, which is similar to the surveillance state that we have in the war on terror in post 11 America. So many of these issues are connected in the ways in which the state actually um, puts in place these policies to profile and detain and um, kind of marginalize all of our communities. So there is an understanding of that as well. So I think that those you know, those two pieces coupled together have become really the entry point for many South Asian Arab Muslim immigrants in understanding how they can be best supportive of the Movement for Black Lives and also co-conspirators, which is a term used by um, Dante Berry, someone that I interview in the book, who's the executive director of a group called Million Hoodies United uh, that started after the Trayvon Martin killing. And he talks a lot about how being allies is one thing but being co-conspirators is another and so i think we're trying to figure out what that means all of us in terms of how to be there for each other but also um figure out how we can advance each other's interests as well
1: yeah and um i know one of the things um it's been projected that by about 2043 uh the united states will become a majority minority nation is the term that they often use for the first time in its history where the majority of the population will be comprised of people of color. And sometimes I read um, sort of liberal post-racial sort of analysis that, that somehow when, when the tipping point reaches and we're 50.1% people of color, that's going to be somehow this <laughs> post-racial mm-hmm. utopia. But I, I think right. that's overly optimistic, as you point out. And What makes you think that when that happens, racist and xenophobic beliefs and attitudes could become even more prominent, and how might policymakers intervene?
0: Right, exactly. So, you know, in many parts of the country, we are already a majority-minority jurisdiction in that people of color comprise the largest population uh, together, Um, But as we kind of head towards that, as our demographic landscape transforms, I write, and and many others talk about this too, that there will be a rise and increase in racial anxiety, particularly among people who are afraid that they will lose access to power, cultural, economic, political power in this country, to other people of color. And when this racial anxiety kind of rears up, we hear – rhetoric such as, you know, we have to take our country back. We have to um, really stay true to the true nature of America. And it leads to xenophobic policies as well, such as restrictions on immigration, um, such as the, you know, uh, refusal to let in Syrian refugees. That's part of, you know, this kind of xenophobia as well. And we'll also see, I think, this real entrenchment in terms of not giving uh, people of color rights. So whether it's in the affirmative action um, arena or whether it's in terms of, say, um, access to housing or access to educational opportunities, I think that we'll really see some restrictions on that end. And so what we need to be doing is first to really uh, push against what what you said, these kind of narratives that really are not going to be true. You know, numbers don't equal uh, power. Numbers don't equal immediate equity. And so we need to push back on these misguided notions that will be a post-racial, color blind race-neutral country all of a sudden when 2042 comes around. Um, So it's important to push back on those narratives. And then secondly, it's important to recognize, and and I think we we have to keep doing this um, from now onwards, that we have a lot of work to do when it comes to to um, addressing some of the structural inequities that we have in this country. Every data point that that we look at, people of color fall below white people in terms of access to benefits, services, rights, and the like. And so really recommitting ourselves to addressing those structural inequities to create a more inclusive country, more equitable country is going to be important. And then thirdly, um, really understanding how we can address that racial anxiety that's coming up in, in many different ways. How do we spot it? How do we, um, how do we push back on it? How do we understand when it's going to actually become something dangerous to different communities of color and immigrant communities? So I think those are all kind of the tasks that are ahead of us as we um, see this landscape around us transform so dramatically and so quickly.
1: Yeah, I think the racial anxiety element is important because it seems like, like, I keep bringing up Donald Trump, but it seems like his campaign is really exploiting that, and, and a lot of that right. is sort of in ways that, um, I mean, that aren't even based on truths. for example. Right now there's actually a net outflow of immigrants from Mexico. There's actually more right. Mexicans leaving than coming into the United States. Part of that's because of the economic crash 2008 Mm -hmm. there's other reasons and also because the obama administration actually which a lot of people don't recognize has been pretty aggressive about deporting people which is not really a good thing but i mean but on the other hand he's he's uh losing some of the immigration immigration policies with regards to the dreamers and stuff so that's sort of the public Mm -hmm. face of it but but i think so few people recognize even would even know the fact that that more people are leaving than coming in because the rhetoric is so amped up that people think, oh, my gosh, it's an invasion or whatever. And so how we deal with that anxiety. And and I guess the other part of that, which which, um, I think the Syrian refugee crisis, too, is another issue where um, in the post-Paris attacks or the post-Paris world that people are fearful of these, Syrian refugees coming into the US, even though the people who perpetrated the attacks in Paris were all French and mm-hmm. Belgian nationals. I mean they were Europeans, I mean they were of of, of Muslim religion or, or some of them were of Arab descent or Morocco or mm-hmm. North African at least, not Arab, but, but uh but how do um you know, how do we address those kind of I mean what what do you see as a way of sort of addressing that kind of xenophobia or getting people to see the truth or seems like that's a difficult struggle
0: yeah and i think you're right that it is amped up right now and and certainly with the attacks in paris with the shootings the horrible shootings that occurred in california this week you know we are seeing this amped up rhetoric around um who belongs in this country and who doesn't and who should have rights and who shouldn't, and it's all enveloped in this cloak of national security and um, kind of protectionist rhetoric and safety rhetoric. And so I think part, part of what we need to do is to really be able to, as, as you're doing you know, on this show, I think week after week, um, really have the ability to critically analyze and assess This rhetoric and also what's behind it. So as you were pointing out, you know, with this refusal to allow Syrian refugees in, well, what's really behind that? Um, It doesn't seem to be a direct response to what happened in Paris, even though it is actually put out as such. Um, But what's also behind it is this this Growing xenophobia that we've seen in this country, this anti-immigrant and anti-refugee sentiment that we've been seeing towards Central Americans and other refugee communities as well, and so I think it's important that we that we develop uh, this critical framework to be able to assess some of what's being told to us, um, so that we don't just take it, you know, and swallow it um, and and digest it, but actually ask critical questions of policymakers and of our media and really also put, in, put forward sort of the values that define us um, as Americans in this country and um, what is important to us and hold policymakers to task, hold them accountable in terms of their words and their votes um, to the values that we believe are important.
1: Yeah, and, and I think one of the other unfortunate things, which is, I guess, kind of going back into sort of a sociological analysis, is that there's a tendency when when a horrible crime is perpetrated by a person of color or a person of a racial or ethnic or religious minority, that that person somehow is representative of the, the whole group. So, for example, the California shootings, now people are going to make a big deal, you know, oh, because they were Islamic, you know, we got to keep all Islamic people out. But there isn't the same, when it's a majority group, they're usually considered, Um, you know, a Lone Wolf or some other... So Timothy McVeigh, for example, is not considered to represent all white people when he bombed the federal Mm -hmm. building in Oklahoma City, or the Planned Parenthood shooter isn't seen as representative of white Christians. They're sort of isolated because the dominant Mm -hmm. group somehow gets to define them as outside that. But whenever, whenever there's a Muslim who commits some kind of crime or terrorist attack somehow all Muslims are held responsible and moderate Muslims are supposed to speak up. Even though right. they do, they're hardly mm-hmm. hardly noticed. But, you know, somehow we don't mm-hmm. say, well, you know, where's John Hagee and, and, and um, Pat Robertson to condemn the attack on Planned Parenthood? Right. I mean, nobody asked them to speak for the Christian community. Exactly.
0: Oh. hmm I could not agree with you more on everything you just said. Um, Absolutely, I co-sign everything you said. And and we we definitely have seen, um, even in the last few days since the um, massacre in California, this language of racial coding, this language that sets up these double standards in terms of who is seen as a terrorist, what kinds of acts are seen as domestic terrorism, and what are not. And as you mentioned, um, when it comes to acts that are perpetrated by South Asian, Arab, or Muslim immigrants, there is a sense of collective guilt and collective responsibility that is foisted upon the shoulders of the communities that they represent even though, um, you know, everybody finds those actions completely reprehensible. And um, Muslims, uh, for people who practice Islam, uh, particularly, who say over and over again that there's nothing Islamic or um, nothing Muslim about what they did. And so... um, we we don't see the standard though, as you mentioned, apply to white um, gunmen or white shooters. So whether it's Dylan Roof, the white supremacist who terrorized uh, black congregants in a church in um, Charleston earlier this year, or the Planned Parenthood shooter, just five days ago, you know, we don't see the same sorts of calls for condemnation by white or Christian groups or communities as to what occurred. um, But we also don't see um, those acts necessarily labeled as acts of domestic terrorism. And um, as we also know, you know, there are a number of organized hate groups in this country that are right-wing domestic groups that really are um, organizing in response to the demographic changes to the migration flows to Muslim communities living in America. And they pose a real threat as well, Um, but we don't actually see white supremacists such as Dylan Roof or Wade Michael Page, who actually uh, perpetrated the violence at the Oak Creek uh, Gurdwara that we were talking about earlier, Um, we don't see them treated in the same way. And so I think it's important that we that we call that out and that we take media and political leaders to task on creating these differences and characterizing them with these racially coded words. Um because I, I don't think it's just semantic. Um, you know, the, the ways in which um our communities are being asked to take on this collective guilt and are scapegoated really has a real life impact and You had mentioned this earlier that the backlash um, is real for our communities. And so, you know, after Paris, there was a wave of backlash that people are still dealing with. And unfortunately, you know, everyone is sort of bracing for more backlash in light of what happened in California.
1: Yeah, and you see certainly instances of, of vandalism or threats of violence against mosques and people that are either... Arab or Muslim, or perceived to be in some cases they might be Sikhs or people that aren't mm-hmm. Arab or Muslim, but 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 the xenophobes don't usually make those distinctions.
0: <laughs> so right, it's, exactly. It's sort
1: of anybody you know who's got a turban and he must be a Muslim or whatever. Right. But But um and so I guess you know at some point it it makes me nervous that that we'll see some kind of backlash and some kind of retaliatory violence that will um okay. certainly doesn't make things any better it, it's just you know putting another layer on it or or and so hopefully we won't we won't see that but i'm not terribly optimistic i mean I, I i think it's important like you said to keep fighting against some of those um narratives and and i guess it's good that i do think there is a significant number of of People in this country who are fighting those narratives, including sometimes people who have influential access in the political system or in the media, but it, but I feel like it's still not enough. Or you know, there's a, a lot of the mainstream media I think buys into mm-hmm. the narratives. So even even not the right wing media, but just people like CNN right. or other places sort of buy mm-hmm. into it. And then of course on the right wing mm-hmm. media, you have you know some really extreme examples of people feeding the sort of xenophobia, so
0: mm-hmm.
1: hopefully we can No, work absolutely.
0: Against yeah, absolutely. And I think that um I think though that you know Americans generally are losing their appetite for the sort of overt Islamophobia, overt xenophobia such as what you know earlier we were talking about with Mr. Trump. Um but I think that what is going to be uh, important in especially the days and weeks ahead and months ahead is to see whether we as Americans can also say um, that we won't tolerate, you know, this racially coded language, um, these misleading characterizations, or the wave of backlash or political rhetoric that's targeting these communities. I think that's what we need to go to next. I think a lot of people are doing that in different ways, you know, reaching out to mosques and gurdwaras in their communities. Um, they are uh, providing support to those houses of worship. There's a lot of great interfaith work happening. So I do think that there has been a lot of progress over the last 14 years in building sort of this interaction and understanding between different communities and the communities I write about. Um, but I think that beyond those cultural shifts and those heart changes, right, which are absolutely important, Um, we also need to focus on the policy changes, um, because that is really where the rubber hits the road in terms of whether or not there will be some Mm -hmm. substantive changes in the lives of our communities, or whether it will continue to be the cycle of backlash, feeds, you know, it's fed by different actions that happen around the world or in our country, and Our communities are constantly living in this state of scrutiny, living in this domestic war on terror that's really targeting us. So I think that's really the task ahead to see if we can, um, I think we know what's right and what's wrong inside. I think it's whether or not we can take that moral compass and actually turn it into some um, accountability, calls to accountability and policy changes.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's very well put, and, and uh, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us tonight. I th- I thought it was really uh, a great interview, and really appreciate all your insight and, and all your hard work on the book, and all the things you do for justice. Um, before you go, though, is there um um where can people go for more information, or or you know like a website, or to order the book or stuff? And we'll try to put that up on our liberal fix page too, so people can go for more information if they'd like.
0: Oh, that'd be great! Yes, um, so people can order the book on amazon or um at indiebound dot com or even ask at your local library or bookstore um and if folks are interested in getting in touch with me or coming out to one of the stops on the book tour that I'm on, you can visit www. that's my name d e e p a i y e r dot com to learn more about where the book tour is going and how to contact me to um, connect with me on these issues.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. I'll I'll put up a link to that on our liberal fix site too so people can access it there and uh once again I wanted to thank you so much for joining us and hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend and and give your voice a rest too. I know you're.
0: <laughs> traveling. Letting an
1: echo, but, but you, you sounded fine on the show. So you you made it through oh, there. So
0: <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, it's been a it's been a pretty um, hectic, but really. Um, Exhilarating month of travel and, and connecting with people around the country. Um, but thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for creating the media that you do and these conversations. I think that they're so critical to developing that that lens that we that we all need to ask the right questions.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it, and thank you again so much for joining us and for all all you do. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. You
1: that. And that was Deepa Iyer. She's the author of We Too Sing America South Asian Arab Muslim and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. And um uh she was having a little trouble with her uh voice, um so, so we we ran the show about forty five minutes cause, um well, I mean it sounded fine on the show, but uh, she told me before the show that she was uh had been uh on the road a lot and wasn't feeling uh that greater she was losing her voice so so um that's why the show will be a little shorter this week but I thought it was a great interview and I hope everybody enjoyed it. And on behalf of uh the Liberal Fix Radio Show, on behalf of Keith Breakfast, Naomi Minogue and Dan Bimrose, we want to wish everybody a safe and happy weekend. And I'll be signing off from the Kingdom of Now. We'll catch you again soon.